Part 1. Page 4. Exercise B. Listen and infer. Hello, my name is Amanda Forsythe, and this is one of a series of podcasts about how to upgrade your life. We typically think of upgrading as buying something better or downloading something new. If a friend told us she'd upgraded her TV, for instance, we'd imagine that she'd bought a new TV with a bigger screen and better features. But obviously we can't buy or download a better life, right? So what do I mean when I talk about upgrading your life? I'm going to be talking about how you can improve your life by adopting simple habits. All of the life upgrades I'm going to discuss meet three fundamental criteria. First, they are all based on evidence and research. I won't suggest anything that hasn't been documented and proven, okay? Second, the life upgrades I'm going to share cost nothing or almost nothing and don't need a big-time commitment. And finally, the life upgrades are all ones I have personally tried and found to be beneficial, yeah? Page 5. Exercise C. Vocabulary. A. Stefan was unable to use his computer because its operating system needed a major upgrade. B. After seeing how well his friends did on the test, Ahmed decided to adopt the study habits they used. C. Yuna's parents told her that honesty is a fundamental principle in building good relationships. D. Dan used a few criteria when choosing a vacation destination, but his main consideration was cost. E. Josie made a firm commitment to work less and spend more time with her friends and family. F. Lee's professor advised him to conduct an experiment to find out if his theory was accurate. G. Rachel read that exercising often could lead to better sleep and an enhanced overall quality of life. H. The listeners accepted Bob's ideas because he was able to cite research that supported his views. I. After their baby was born, Deb and Ian had so little sleep, they were in a state of constant fatigue. J. Usually Karen could concentrate for hours, but somehow her attention span was limited that day. Page 6. Exercise E. Listen for main ideas. Hello, my name is Amanda Forsythe, and this is one of a series of podcasts about how to upgrade your life. We typically think of upgrading as buying something better or downloading something new. If a friend told us she'd upgraded her TV, for instance, we'd imagine that she'd bought a new TV with a bigger screen and better features. But obviously, we can't buy or download a better life, right? So what do I mean when I talk about upgrading your life? I'm going to be talking about how you can improve your life by adopting simple habits. All of the life upgrades I'm going to discuss meet three fundamental criteria. First, 
They are all based on evidence and research. I won't suggest anything that hasn't been documented and proven, okay? Second, the life upgrades I'm going to share cost nothing or almost nothing and don't need a big-time commitment. And finally, the life upgrades are all ones I have personally tried and found to be beneficial, yeah? Okay, what if I told you about something that would lower your blood pressure and reduce your risk of getting diabetes? What if the same thing could make you happier by reducing anxiety and depression? And what if the same thing could also help you feel less tired and even live longer? You'd be interested, right? So what is this miracle life upgrade with so many potential benefits? The answer? Just six words. Walk every day for 30 minutes. That's all you need to do to get all of those benefits. Walk for one half hour each day. Now, as I said, this is a life upgrade that I've already tried. I adopted the habit about four months ago, and I've definitely felt better and healthier since then. Not only that, but I've lost some weight too, which is a nice bonus. It was hard to make time to walk every day at first, but I found the easiest option for me was to change how I commute each day. I simply get off the bus a few stops early and walk the rest of the way to work or home. Now, personal stories are nice, but there's scientific support for this life upgrade too. A study from Japan that was conducted in the 1990s showed that people who walked to work had many health benefits. And a study of 50,000 people conducted over an extended period by Stephen Blair, a professor at the Arnold School of Public Health at the University of South Carolina, is also interesting. Blair's study showed that people with lower fitness levels generally had shorter lives. Before continuing, I should say that I first learned about the health benefits of walking when I watched a visual lecture by Mike Evans called 23 and a Half Hours. Evans is from Canada. He's a doctor, associate professor at the University of Toronto, and radio broadcaster. He concluded that walking for at least half an hour leads to enhanced fitness. The video is visually interesting, and he cites research that supports his claim, so I highly recommend watching it. Now, usually I'll cover just one life upgrade in each podcast, but for this one, I thought I'd include a bonus life upgrade. And it's another super simple one. Spend more time in nature. If you want to learn more about this, check out the website of another Canadian, David Suzuki. He's famous as an author, an academic, and an activist who works to protect the environment. Anyway, according to the evidence, people who regularly spend time outdoors are less anxious and less likely to be depressed. They have lower levels of stress and feel less fatigue. And they have a lower risk for medical issues like diabetes, cardiac problems, and some forms of cancer. There are also mental benefits, with those who spend time outdoors showing better problem-solving skills, enhanced memory, and a longer attention span. And, of course, as you've no doubt realized, if you do your 30-minute daily walk in nature, you get a double benefit. Well, that's it for this podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share, like, and tweet to spread the word.
And please listen to my next one when I'll be talking about how you can upgrade your life by spending more time standing up and less time sitting down. Page 7. Exercise F. Listen for details. Before continuing, I should say that I first learned about the health benefits of walking when I watched a visual lecture by Mike Evans called 23 and a Half Hours. Evans is from Canada. He's a doctor, associate professor at the University of Toronto, and radio broadcaster. He concluded that walking for at least half an hour leads to enhanced fitness. The video is visually interesting, and he cites research that supports his claim, so I highly recommend watching it. Now, usually I'll cover just one life upgrade in each podcast, but for this one, I thought I'd include a bonus life upgrade. And it's another super simple one. Spend more time in nature. If you want to learn more about this, check out the website of another Canadian, David Suzuki. He's famous as an author, an academic, and an activist who works to protect the environment. Page 8. Exercise G. Now, personal stories are nice, but there's scientific support for this life upgrade, too. A study from Japan that was conducted in the 1990s showed that people who walked to work had many health benefits. And a study of 50,000 people conducted over an extended period by Stephen Blair, a professor at the Arnold School of Public Health at the University of South Carolina, is also interesting. Blair's study showed that people with lower fitness levels generally had shorter lives. Page 10. Exercise M. Excerpt 1. Okay, what if I told you about something that would lower your blood pressure and reduce your risk of getting diabetes? What if the same thing could make you happier by reducing anxiety and depression? And what if the same thing could also help you feel less tired and even live longer? You'd be interested, right? So what is this miracle life upgrade with so many potential benefits? The answer? Just six words. Walk every day for 30 minutes. Excerpt 2. It was hard to make time to walk every day at first, but I found the easiest option for me was to change how I commute each day. I simply get off the bus a few stops early, and walk the rest of the way to work or home. Now, personal stories are nice, but there's scientific support for this life upgrade, too. A study from Japan that was conducted in the 1990s showed that people who walked to work had many health benefits. Excerpt 3. Anyway, according to the evidence, people who regularly spend time outdoors are less anxious and less likely to be depressed. They have lower levels of stress and feel less fatigue. 
And they have a lower risk for medical issues like diabetes, cardiac problems, and some forms of cancer. There are also mental benefits, with those who spend time outdoors showing better problem-solving skills, enhanced memory, and a longer attention span. And of course, as you've no doubt realized, if you do your 30-minute daily walk in nature, you get a double benefit. Part 2, page 13, exercise C, vocabulary. 1. Scholars initially thought there were only two types of smiles, real and fake, but recent research conducted by renowned psychologist Paul Ekman suggests there are actually 18 different kinds. 2. Studies suggest that people who frown often are rated as less attractive than those who smile often. Such people may also be considered less competent or skilled at their jobs than they really are. 3. Surveys show that those who often smile at work find their jobs more emotionally fulfilling than people who smile less often at work. The surveys further suggest that smiling regularly at work can improve people's overall sense of job satisfaction and their well-being. 4. When babies mimic the sounds they hear and copy the facial expressions they see, they are actually learning how to communicate. As a result, adults can stimulate communicative ability in infants by using a variety of facial expressions when speaking to them. 5. When faced with an unproven theory, academics undertake research studies to determine whether or not it is correct. If the results show that the theory is wrong or incomplete, Scholars may modify it or come up with a new theory. Part 1, page 24, exercise B. Okay, so as you know, our focus in this class is on the study of social movements. I've previously defined these movements as being formal or informal group actions that focus on a single political or social issue in order to bring about some form of positive change in society. Page 25. Exercise C. Vocabulary. 1. The government's plan to make citizens with high earnings pay more taxes is controversial. 2. Institutions such as banks, hospitals, and universities play a vital role in modern society. 3. The manager's policy was to be transparent and explain in detail why she made each decision. 4. The magazine article disclosed details about the politician's career that few people knew. 5. The company paid back the employee's hotel and travel expenses after his business trip to China. 6. The revelation that the company was releasing a new smartphone caused its stock price to rise. 7. 
sales of the product collapsed when a competitor introduced a similar but much cheaper product. 8. The investigation found previously unknown evidence, and the police quickly solved the case. 9. The government launched a new employment initiative to help unemployed citizens find jobs. 10. The CEO was surprised by the survey that showed many consumers felt mistrust for the brand. Page 26. Exercise E. Listen for main ideas. Okay, so as you know, our focus in this class is on the study of social movements. I've previously defined these movements as being formal or informal group actions that focus on a single political or social issue in order to bring about some form of positive change in society. It won't be controversial for me to say that this world isn't perfect. Politicians act badly, financial institutions fail, and consumers mistrust companies. But a couple of social movements have the potential to solve these issues and bring lasting benefits to society. Which two movements? The first is the global right-to-know movement. The second is the growing trend for transparency, or being open. These two ideas might seem different, but for me, they're like opposite sides of the same coin. Okay. So, let's look at both movements in more detail. The Right to Know movement began back in the 1960s after the publication of Silent Spring by conservationist Rachel Carson. After this book came out, citizens began to ask questions about the environment. They wanted to know what industry and government were doing. They wanted the right to ask questions and get answers. Now, transparency. We know its usual meaning, right? A transparent object allows light to pass through it so that what is behind it can be clearly seen. Well, as a social movement, transparency means that organisations are open. They freely share information about what they have done and why. To sum up, Right to Know focuses on what people want organisations to disclose. Transparency is about what organisations choose to disclose. As I said, they're like opposite sides of the same coin. Okay, so let's move on to examples of how these movements have led to positive change. Back in 2004, a journalist named Heather Brook began requesting information about politicians in the UK. She wanted to know about their expenses. Her requests weren't allowed at first. But finally, the highest UK court ruled that citizens had the right to know and shouldn't be kept in the dark. When the details were made public, it was clear some politicians had claimed expenses they shouldn't have claimed. This revelation made people in the UK angry and ready for change. This feeling led to greater levels of public debate about this important issue, as well as a more transparent procedure for claiming expenses. OK, so... Another example is the case of the global financial crisis of 2008. Iceland was affected by this crisis more than any other country. Its three main banks collapsed. The value of its currency fell by half. The stock market lost more than 90% of its value. And levels of inflation and foreign debt rose dramatically. Investigations showed that various people in government and the financial industry had made mistakes 
failed to take action, perhaps even acted in illegal ways. Not surprisingly, when the people of Iceland heard these revelations, they wanted more transparency. As a result, politicians in Iceland felt that perhaps public data should be openly available. And in 2010, a former comedian was elected as mayor of Reykjavik, Iceland's capital, after promising political transparency. So what about business? A survey from 2014 showed that at least 40% of North American consumers haven't got much trust in companies. The fast food industry is a good example because many consumers think this kind of food isn't healthy or environmentally friendly. Well, McDonald's, the biggest fast food company of them all, thinks transparency might be a solution. In 2012, it set up a website to give personal answers to any questions about the firm's food. And the questions can be pretty direct, from what's the healthiest food item on the menu to why doesn't the food go bad? This transparency initiative only applies to McDonald's Canada, but I think it's a step in the right direction. If McDonald's, a company that isn't known for being open, is willing to be open with the public to end mistrust, it shows that the right to know and transparency movements are bringing about positive social change. Page 27. Exercise F. Listen for details. Excerpt 1. Okay, so let's look at both movements in more detail. The Right to Know movement began back in the 1960s after the publication of Silent Spring by conservationist Rachel Carson. Excerpt 2. Okay. So let's move on to examples of how these movements have led to positive change. Back in 2004, a journalist named Heather Brook began requesting information about politicians in the UK. Excerpt 3. OK, so another example is the case of the global financial crisis of 2008. Iceland was affected by this crisis more than any other country. Its three main banks collapsed. The value of its currency fell by half. Excerpt 4. OK, so what about business? A survey from 2014 showed that at least 40% of North American consumers haven't got much trust in companies. Page 27. Exercise G. Excerpt 1. OK, so let's look at both movements in more detail. The Right to Know movement began back in the 1960s after the publication of Silent Spring by conservationist Rachel Carson. After this book came out, citizens began to ask questions about the environment. They wanted to know what industry and government were doing. They wanted the right to ask questions and get answers. Excerpt 2. When the details were made public, it was clear some politicians had claimed expenses they shouldn't have claimed. This revelation made people in the UK angry and ready for change. This feeling led to greater levels of public debate about this important issue, as well as a more transparent procedure for claiming expenses. Excerpt 3. 
Investigations showed that various people in government and the financial industry had made mistakes, failed to take action, perhaps even acted in illegal ways. Not surprisingly, when the people of Iceland heard these revelations, they wanted more transparency. As a result, politicians in Iceland felt that perhaps public data should be openly available. And in 2010, a former comedian was elected as mayor of Reykjavik, Iceland's capital, after promising political transparency. Excerpt 4 Okay, so what about business? A survey from 2014 showed that at least 40% of North American consumers haven't got much trust in companies. The fast food industry is a good example because many consumers think this kind of food isn't healthy or environmentally friendly. Well, McDonald's, the biggest fast food company of them all, thinks transparency might be a solution. In 2012, it set up a website to give personal answers to any questions about the firm's food. And the questions can be pretty direct, from what's the healthiest food item on the menu to why doesn't the food go bad? This transparency initiative only applies to McDonald's Canada, but I think it's a step in the right direction. Page 30. Pronunciation skill. Stress important information. Examples. Important information may include main ideas or key concepts. To sum up, Right to Know focuses on what people want organizations to disclose. Transparency is about what organizations choose to disclose. Numbers, dates, and names. Back in 2004, a journalist named Heather Brook began requesting information. Negative words. The highest UK court ruled that citizens had the right to know and shouldn't be kept in the dark. Page 30. Exercise M. This transparency initiative only applies to McDonald's Canada, but I think it's a step in the right direction. If McDonald's, a company that isn't known for being open, is willing to be open with the public to end mistrust, it shows that the right to know and transparency movements are bringing about positive social change. Part 2. Page 32. Exercise C. Vocabulary. A. The student pursued her goal of becoming a doctor by focusing on her studies and working hard. B. The man was pleased to learn that his doctor was not acting on behalf of any drug companies. C. The patient's problem disappeared after her doctor prescribed the right medicine for her. D. The respondent gave very detailed and helpful answers to the questions in the health survey. E. The internist, or doctor specializing in treating adults, had a close affiliation with a charitable organization as well as a relationship with several local clinics. F. 
The patients received a small sum of money as an incentive for taking part in the medical trial. G. The doctor was interested in bone disorders, so she chose orthopedics as her medical specialty. H. The man was ashamed of being unfit and felt guilty for not taking his doctor's advice to exercise. I. The woman qualified as a physician after completing 11 years of medical school and training. J. The patient's weakness made him vulnerable to infection, so the surgeon canceled the operation. Part 1, page 45. Exercise C. Vocabulary. 1. After seeing how it led to more sales, the manager could really appreciate her team's hard work. 2. At first, the rationale for the firm's choice was unclear, but the reason soon became obvious. 3. Consumers often find the opinions of friends highly influential when deciding what to purchase. 4. Despite knowing that sales might decline, the company made a conscious decision to raise prices. 5. In order to hire the best new employees, the firm significantly increased its budget for recruitment. 6. The company decided to assign junior employees an experienced mentor to give them advice. 7. The company's computers were state-of-the-art. None of its competitors had such advanced machines. 8. The company developed a set of written guidelines to help new employees learn the job quickly. 9. The executive's ability to speak three languages was an invaluable skill when traveling on business. 10. The manager suspected that the staff member had an ulterior motive for requesting extra time off. Page 46. Exercise E. Listen for main ideas. This is Cameron Locke for Business Radio in the Mornings. Joining me in the studio is successful local entrepreneur Sandra Davies. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you for having me. Okay. So what would you say is the secret to your success? When I was young and had just started out in business, I was lucky enough to have a mentor. And this mentor once told me how important it was to listen carefully to others. That advice, to listen, has been a big factor in my success. But when I first heard it, I did what I think most people my age would do. I pretty much ignored it. <laughs> so what changed? Well, I almost lost my job because I didn't listen properly. One day, I overheard my boss ask a colleague to get a new coffee machine for the office. I wanted more responsibility, so I begged my boss to let me do it instead. He agreed and gave me a large budget, and I ordered an expensive, state-of-the-art espresso machine all the way from Italy. To be honest, I should have confirmed with my boss before I placed the order. Most coffee machines cost just a few hundred, but my budget was several thousand, which made me wonder. 
I didn't check with my boss, though, because I wanted to show that I could handle the responsibility. When the machine arrived, I made a fresh cup and took it to my boss and asked, Would you like the very first coffee from the new machine? He looked surprised and said, Coffee? And there's a pause. And then he turns red like a tomato. Coffee machine? I wanted a copy machine. (laughs) But you kept your job. I came pretty close to being let go, I think. But my poor listening ability actually ended up saving the company thousands of dollars in recruitment, training, and personnel costs. You see, for the next three years, not a single person quit. Why? They loved the coffee too much. (laughs) So that's how you learned the value of listening. Yes. Listening is something that everyone knows how to do because it's a natural skill, but that doesn't mean everyone can do it well. And, to be honest, at first, I was terrible. To paraphrase a well-known saying, when somebody else was speaking, I wasn't listening. I was just waiting for my turn to speak. My poor listening skills had almost cost me my job. So I read books about listening, watched talks about listening, asked people questions about listening, and over time, I developed a set of guidelines for how to listen effectively. Can you share some? How about my top three? First, there's a consultant named Julian Treasure, a very suitable name, I think, because his advice is invaluable. He has a good website with some interesting talks posted on it. Anyway, Treasure has said that great leaders, the people who are the most influential, are usually really good at listening to others, and I have generally found that to be true. Anyway, something that Julian Treasure advises is that we make a conscious choice to listen to what people say rather than just to hear them. And he uses the acronym RASA, that's R-A-S-A, to explain how to do that. According to Treasure, when you listen, you should receive or pay attention to the person. You should appreciate or make noises to show you're listening. You should summarize what the other person has said, and you should ask questions after you have listened. So the acronym RASA stands for receive, appreciate, summarize, and ask. Second, and this is related to the first point, I like to ask questions when I'm listening, as well as after I've listened. But these are questions I ask myself, not the other person, like, Why? What? How? So, why? Why is she saying this at this time? Why is she speaking to me rather than somebody else? In other words, what's her rationale and does she have an ulterior motive? What? What does he want? What is he saying today that is different from yesterday? What can I ask him about this? And how? How will she benefit from this? How will I benefit? How can I listen better? And so on. I find that if I ask myself those questions when I'm listening, then I listen in ways that lead to positive results for everyone. And third, sometimes I make a conscious choice to adopt different listening styles. Usually I focus on content when I listen. This means that I want to hear facts, data, or evidence so that I can make an informed judgment about what I'm hearing. Content-focused listening helps me do my job well. Sometimes, however, it's beneficial to be people-focused when I listen. 
This means that I listen for feelings, for things I have in common with the other person, and so on. What's my rationale for this? I've noticed that understanding another person's feelings can lead to better communication with that person. And in turn, that can lead to business success for us all. Interesting. We'll be back with more from Sandra Davies right after these messages. Page 47. Exercise F. Listen for details. And page 49. Exercise K. Communicate. When I was young and had just started out in business, I was lucky enough to have a mentor. And this mentor once told me how important it was to listen carefully to others. That advice, to listen, has been a big factor in my success. But when I first heard it, I did what I think most people my age would do. I pretty much ignored it. <laughs> so what changed? Well... I almost lost my job because I didn't listen properly. One day, I overheard my boss ask a colleague to get a new coffee machine for the office. I wanted more responsibility, so I begged my boss to let me do it instead. He agreed and gave me a large budget, and I ordered an expensive, state-of-the-art espresso machine all the way from Italy. To be honest, I should have confirmed with my boss before I placed the order. Most coffee machines cost just a few hundred, but my budget was several thousand, which made me wonder. I didn't check with my boss, though, because I wanted to show that I could handle the responsibility. When the machine arrived, I made a fresh cup and took it to my boss and asked, Would you like the very first coffee from the new machine? He looked surprised and said, Coffee? And there's a pause. And then he turns red like a tomato. Coffee machine? I wanted a copy machine. <laughs> but you kept your job. I came pretty close to being let go, I think. But my poor listening ability actually ended up saving the company thousands of dollars in recruitment, training, and personnel costs. You see, for the next three years, not a single person quit. Why? They loved the coffee too much. <laughs> so that's how you learn the value of listening. Page 48. Exercise H. Excerpt 1. When I was young and had just started out in business, I was lucky enough to have a mentor. And this mentor once told me how important it was to listen carefully to others. That advice, to listen, has been a big factor in my success. But when I first heard it, I did what I think most people my age would do. I pretty much ignored it. Excerpt 2. He agreed and gave me a large budget, and I ordered an expensive, state-of-the-art espresso machine all the way from Italy. To be honest... I should have confirmed with my boss before I placed the order. Most coffee machines cost just a few hundred, but my budget was several thousand, which made me wonder. I didn't check with my boss, though, because I wanted to show that I could handle the responsibility. Excerpt 3 
First, there's a consultant named Julian Treasure, a very suitable name, I think, because his advice is invaluable. He has a good website with some interesting talks posted on it. Anyway, Treasure has said that great leaders, the people who are the most influential, are usually really good at listening to others, and I have generally found that to be true. Page 50, Pronunciation Skill, Intonation for Lists. Examples, Open List. For me, effective listening involves observing, thinking, asking questions. Closed List. I like watching funny movies, listening to funny radio shows, and so on. Page 50, Exercise M. Excerpt 1. My poor listening skills had almost cost me my job, so I read books about listening, watched talks about listening, asked people questions about listening. Excerpt 2. So the acronym RASA stands for Receive, Appreciate, Summarize, and Ask. Excerpt 3. This means that I want to hear facts, data, or evidence so that I can make an informed judgment about what I'm hearing. Excerpt 4. This means that I listen for feelings, for things I have in common with the other person, and so on. Part 2. Page 52, Exercise C, Vocabulary. 1. Despite having no formal training as a facilitator, Emma was great at making things easy for clients, and she was so dedicated to helping them succeed that she made herself available to answer questions on weekends and in the evenings. 2. Soon after Merrick started an enterprise, the economy collapsed, and he was worried about being able to make a living. With a lot of hard work, however, he turned it into a very successful and profitable company. 3. To compete effectively with other firms, the company invested heavily in upgrading its infrastructure. It also focused on capturing good ideas from staff and using them to improve its efficiency. 4. In his role as a domestic servant, Jack learned some private information about his employers. He took pride in maintaining confidentiality, however, and never disclosed any of their secrets. 5. The government decided to initiate a policy to help citizens launch small businesses. It took six months of hard work before government officials were able to activate the new policy and start helping the first entrepreneurs. Page 65. Exercise C. Vocabulary. 1. According to data released by the government, the volume of online commerce has increased significantly over the last few years. 
two. The film studio thought the movie would be popular among a particular demographic and were surprised to discover that it had a broad appeal. Three. The store used data from customer surveys and online reviews to develop a range of new products that could be customized by shoppers. Four. Film and television are probably the two sectors of the entertainment industry that generate the most revenue, but video games are very profitable too. Five. The plot or story of many successful movies follows a classic three-part formula, the setup, the confrontation, and the resolution. Six. Using technology, it is relatively easy to log numerous bits of data about what happens during professional sporting events. Seven. As a result of overlooking how bored consumers were with formulaic dramas, the analysts incorrectly predicted that the new TV show would be popular. Eight. The online shopping site prospered after it started using advanced data analytics to give personalized recommendations to its customers. Nine. The success of the video game was especially notable because so many people had predicted that it would be a failure. Ten. When music producers first began analyzing data about why some songs were successful and others were not, it was revolutionary and transformed the music industry. Page 66. Exercise E. Listen for main ideas. Good morning, everyone. Today we're going to be discussing big data, what it is and why it's important. A basic definition is that big data refers to the way companies use very large amounts of information to produce successful new products and services. In future classes, we'll focus on the impact of big data on business and especially commerce. Today, though, we'll focus on how big data helps the entertainment industry make more money. Let's begin with the movie industry. In the past, movie studios would typically decide on a script, hire a director and some actors, make the movie, market it, and hope to make some money. Let me repeat that. They would hope to turn a profit. Analysis shows that the cost of making and marketing a major studio movie today averages over $100 million. Given the cost, I'm sure you will agree that hoping for revenue is hardly a good business strategy. Analyzing big data allows studios to predict more accurately whether their next movie is going to be a hit. And I'd say that this is the main reason big data has become so important. How does big data work? Film studios can use a wide variety of data about people's opinions. Take social media, for example. How many of you have liked a movie on Facebook? Or tweeted about a film on Twitter? Or written a review on IMDb, the internet movie database? I can see a lot of heads nodding. Well... Studios can access all of that data to learn which genres are popular, which stars are on the rise, which kinds of promotions work best, and so on. The data even allows studios to get answers to very specific questions. Want to know which type of movie is most likely to appeal to 20-year-old college students studying art history in Los Angeles, for example? 
big data can tell you. Why is this important? If the studio knows a particular film is going to be popular among a particular demographic, it can customize the movie's marketing materials to appeal to that sector of the population. And as a basic rule, better marketing means better sales. Now, personally, I'm not convinced that big data is purely beneficial. Like many people, I find many movies to be rather predictable and formulaic. That is, they follow a formula or pattern that rarely changes. Movie studios generally copy things that have been popular in the past, hoping those things will be popular again. Studies show that big data is great at letting studios see what has been popular, but less good at predicting if something new will do well. So in my view, there's definitely a danger that we'll be seeing a narrower variety of movies. Now, everything I've said about the impact of big data on movies could apply equally well to other forms of entertainment, from TV shows to video games, from books to music. So let's discuss big data in another sector of the entertainment industry, sports. Interestingly, though, the example we're going to look at is also an example of big data in movies and books, but it's an example of a movie and book about big data rather than ones influenced by big data. I'm talking about Moneyball, which is about a baseball team, the Oakland Athletics or Oakland A's. During the 2002 baseball season, Oakland had the third lowest payroll or team salary among all teams in professional baseball at just under $40 million. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, but it was around 40% below the average payroll and two-thirds lower than the team with the highest payroll. Why is this important? Well, teams with high payrolls can pay for the star players, and we could expect them to do better than teams that spend less. Usually that would be true, but not in this case. Why? Big data. You see... A huge amount of data is logged about every baseball game. The ace management team knew they could not afford to pay for the best players, so they decided to analyze that data, looking for information that would allow them to be successful at a reasonable cost. I don't want to get too technical here, but basically the analysts in Oakland recognized some key data that others had overlooked. This data showed them that certain players were likely to prosper despite not having the kinds of skills that baseball managers traditionally looked for. So Oakland signed a number of players who had the skills that big data had suggested would lead to team success. And what happened? Well, I'd say the results were pretty amazing. No other baseball team won more games than Oakland that year. Not only that, but at one point in the season, Oakland won a record 20 games in a row. To my mind, Oakland's success is especially notable because three of its star players left before the 2002 season because Oakland could not afford to pay them as much as other teams. Oakland's success was very notable. Other baseball teams soon began to copy its revolutionary approach to using big data. And these days, Big data is having a big impact in most other sports. The reason? 
Big data allows teams and individual athletes to prosper, both in terms of winning games and in terms of making money. Page 67. Exercise F. Listen for details. Let's discuss big data in another sector of the entertainment industry, sports. Interestingly, though, the example we're going to look at is also an example of big data in movies and books. But it's an example of a movie and book about big data rather than ones influenced by big data. I'm talking about Moneyball, which is about a baseball team, the Oakland Athletics, or Oakland A's. During the 2002 baseball season, Oakland had the third lowest payroll, or team salary, among all teams in professional baseball at just under $40 million. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, but it was around 40% below the average payroll and two-thirds lower than the team with the highest payroll. Why is this important? Well, teams with high payrolls can pay for the star players, and we could expect them to do better than teams that spend less. Usually that would be true, but not in this case. Why? Big data. You see, a huge amount of data is logged about every baseball game. The ace management team knew they could not afford to pay for the best players, so they decided to analyze that data, looking for information that would allow them to be successful at a reasonable cost. I don't want to get too technical here, but basically the analysts in Oakland recognized some key data that others had overlooked. This data showed them that certain players were likely to prosper despite not having the kinds of skills that baseball managers traditionally looked for. So Oakland signed a number of players who had the skills that big data had suggested would lead to team success. And what happened? Well, I'd say the results were pretty amazing. No other baseball team won more games than Oakland that year. Not only that, but at one point in the season, Oakland won a record 20 games in a row. To my mind, Oakland's success is especially notable because three of its star players left before the 2002 season because Oakland could not afford to pay them as much as other teams. Oakland's success was very notable. Other baseball teams soon began to copy its revolutionary approach to using big data. And these days, big data is having a big impact in most other sports. The reason? Big data allows teams and individual athletes to prosper, both in terms of winning games and in terms of making money. Page 68. Exercise H. Excerpt 1. Studios can access all of that data to learn which genres are popular, which stars are on the rise, which kinds of promotions work best, and so on. The data even allows studios to get answers to very specific questions. Excerpt 2. Now, personally, 
I'm not convinced that big data is purely beneficial. Like many people, I find many movies to be rather predictable and formulaic. That is, they follow a formula or pattern that rarely changes. Excerpt 3. Studies show that big data is great at letting studios see what has been popular, but less good at predicting if something new will do well. So, in my view, there's definitely a danger that we'll be seeing a narrower variety of movies. Excerpt 4. During the 2002 baseball season, Oakland had the third lowest payroll, or team salary, among all teams in professional baseball at just under $40 million. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, but it was around 40% below the average payroll and two-thirds lower than the team with the highest payroll. Excerpt 5. Not only that, but at one point in the season, Oakland won a record 20 games in a row. To my mind, Oakland's success is especially notable because three of its star players left before the 2002 season because Oakland could not afford to pay them as much as other teams. Page 70. Pronunciation skill. Stress in compound nouns. Examples. Football. Smartphone. University student. Advertising industry. New York. Olympic Games. Art history. Industrial Revolution. Page 70. Exercise M. Communicate. 1. Today, though, we'll focus on how big data helps the entertainment industry make more money. 2. Film studios can use a wide variety of data about people's opinions. Take social media, for example. 3. Want to know which type of movie is most likely to appeal to 20-year-old college students studying art history in Los Angeles, for example? 4. No other baseball team won more games than Oakland that year. Page 72. Exercise C. Vocabulary. 1. After processing the sales data, the employees recognize some key trends. 2. An analysis of sales data helped the company recognize the main traits of its customers. 3. Despite the hype about the movie before it opened, the film was surprisingly bad. 4. Improvements in manufacturing allowed the items to be made faster and with less labor. 5. Interpretation of the data suggests sales will remain static until October and then rise. 6. No data was lost when the computer crashed as it had been stored on a hard drive. 7. 
the company eliminated dozens of jobs in overseas offices because of falling sales. 8. The decision to hire only dynamic, motivated employees was rewarded when profits rose. 9. The student wrote a paper about robotics, which is a branch of computer science. 10. With the new system, data can be transmitted between computers quicker than before. End of CD1. CD2 21st Century Communication Listening, Speaking, and Critical Thinking Level 4 By Christian Lee Copyright National Geographic Learning 2017 Page 85. Exercise C. Vocabulary. A. Reports indicate that efforts to control the epidemic are working and the number of new cases has gone down. The disease still poses a risk, however, and people traveling to the affected area should postpone their trips. B. A storm warning is in effect for the East Beach area. If the forecast is trustworthy, the storm will arrive early on Saturday morning and will generate powerful winds. Local residents expressed anxiety about the potential damage to their homes. C. Will a new self-help book let us conquer our fears? According to a claim by the publisher, readers will learn a basic principle for managing their fears. Is that claim credible? Well, the book includes many anecdotes from people who apparently overcame their fears by following the book's advice. Page 86. Exercise E. Listen for main ideas. Okay. So last class, we discussed the way so many media stories focus on common fears, such as fear of crime, disease, or even unemployment. For our seminar today, I asked you to research why this is happening and what its effects are. So, can I get a couple of volunteers to start our discussion? I'll go first, Professor. Me too. Okay. Matteo first, and then Mina. Okay, well... We learned about if it bleeds, it leads, right? Meaning that news stories about things like diseases, disasters, and deaths are more likely to be lead stories. I read a theory that the media do this to attract viewers. Is that part of it? Maybe. Is it the whole story? Not in my view. I took a science class last year and learned about a principle called Occam's Razor. 
It states that the simplest theory or solution is the most likely one. For me, the simplest reason why there are more media stories about things that pose a risk is because we live in an increasingly dangerous world. Think about it. Just this year, we've experienced two natural disasters, one major epidemic and more than the usual number of violent crimes. I don't have any statistics proving the world is more dangerous nowadays, but common sense tells us it is. So, to sum up, there are more media stories that focus on fear than before because the world is a scarier place. Thanks, Mateo. I liked the reference to Occam's razor, but next time, perhaps give a little more evidence to back up your ideas, okay? Your turn, Mina. Okay. As we discussed, the media really do seem to be focusing more on fear than in the past. I found an article by David L. Altide about mass media, crime, and fear in the U.S. He makes some interesting claims. For instance, up to one-third of stories on local TV news are about crime. And here's another one that I found really shocking. Apparently, during a period when the murder rate in this country declined by 20%, the number of media stories about murder rose by just under 600%. So why is this happening? Mateo said it's because the world is more dangerous. Does the data support this argument, though? I read a book by the cognitive scientist Steven Pinker called The Better Angels of Our Nature. Pinker argues that the world is actually much safer on average than it used to be. The book has over 700 pages, so I can't summarize all his points, but here are two interesting statistics. Pinker claims that acts of bullying and violence at schools have decreased by approximately 80% since the early 1990s. He also says that in the last 15 years, the murder rate has declined in around three-fourths of countries for which there is reliable data. So if the world is actually safer, why are there more fear-based stories? Well, media companies benefit when more people view their stories. A story about something threatening that gets 20 million views can generate more advertising dollars than a less scary story with just 5 million views. So for me, the argument that the media focus on fear to generate income is definitely a credible one. Do all of these media stories about fear affect how people behave? I'd say the answer is yes. I couldn't find any research data, so the best I can offer is a personal anecdote. I've got a younger sister, and she's really missed me since I've been at college. She's never visited me here, so I arranged for her to come last spring break. At first, she was really excited, but about a week before she was supposed to come, she changed her mind and canceled. She wouldn't tell me why, so I asked my mom about it. It turned out my sister was frightened. She'd never been in a plane before, so she already had some anxiety about flying up to see me. But then she read a news story about aircraft safety. Now, the story actually said that most aircraft are safe and the risk of a problem is tiny. However, the information was presented in a way that made my sister think the opposite. In other words, it scared her, and so she didn't come. As I said, this is anecdotal evidence. I'm not saying everyone would react like my sister, but haven't we all known people who got scared after seeing a story in the media? I guess we should all learn to conquer our fears. But I think it's irresponsible of the media to frighten people just to make money from ads. Thank you, Mina. Nicely done.
Page 86. Exercise F. Listen for details. Okay, as we discussed, the media really do seem to be focusing more on fear than in the past. I found an article by David L. Altide about mass media, crime, and fear in the U.S. He makes some interesting claims. For instance, up to one-third of stories on local TV news are about crime. And here's another one that I found really shocking. Apparently, during a period when the murder rate in this country declined by 20%, the number of media stories about murder rose by just under 600%. So why is this happening? Matteo said it's because the world is more dangerous. Does the data support this argument, though? I read a book by the cognitive scientist Steven Pinker called The Better Angels of Our Nature. Pinker argues that the world is actually much safer on average than it used to be. The book has over 700 pages, so I can't summarize all his points, but here are two interesting statistics. Pinker claims that acts of bullying and violence at schools have decreased by approximately 80% since the early 1990s. He also says that in the last 15 years, the murder rate has declined in around three-fourths of countries for which there is reliable data. So if the world is actually safer, why are there more fear-based stories? Well, media companies benefit when more people view their stories. A story about something threatening that gets 20 million views can generate more advertising dollars than a less scary story with just 5 million views. So for me, the argument that the media focus on fear to generate income is definitely a credible one. Page 87. Exercise G. Communicate. Okay, well, we learned about if it bleeds, it leads, right? Meaning that news stories about things like diseases, disasters, and deaths are more likely to be lead stories. I read a theory that the media do this to attract viewers. Is that part of it? Maybe. Is it the whole story? Not in my view. I took a science class last year and learned about a principle called Occam's razor. It states that the simplest theory or solution is the most likely one. For me, the simplest reason why there are more media stories about things that pose a risk is because we live in an increasingly dangerous world. Think about it. Just this year, we've experienced two natural disasters, one major epidemic and more than the usual number of violent crimes. I don't have any statistics proving the world is more dangerous nowadays, but common sense tells us it is. So, to sum up, there are more media stories that focus on fear than before because the world is a scarier place. Page 90. Exercise K. Excerpt 1. Okay, well, we learned about if it bleeds, it leads, right? Meaning that news stories about things like diseases, disasters, and deaths are more likely to be lead stories. Excerpt 2. I read a theory that the media do this to attract viewers. Is that part of it? Maybe. 
Is it the whole story? Not in my view. Excerpt 3 So, why is this happening? Mateo said it's because the world is more dangerous. Does the data support this argument, though? I read a book by the cognitive scientist Steven Pinker called The Better Angels of Our Nature. Pinker argues that the world is actually much safer on average. Excerpt 4 So if the world is actually safer, why are there more fear-based stories? Well, media companies benefit when more people view their stories. Excerpt 5 I'm not saying everyone would react like my sister, but haven't we all known people who got scared after seeing a story in the media? I guess we should all learn to conquer our fears. Page 91. Pronunciation Skill. Thought Groups. Natural Thought Groups. Think about it. Just this year we've experienced two natural disasters, one major epidemic, and more than the usual number of violent crimes. Unnatural Thought Groups. Think about it. Just this year we've experienced two natural disasters, one major epidemic and more than the usual number of violent crimes. Page 91. Exercise L. Communicate. 1. Studies show that most people have at least one phobia. 2. Studies show that most people have at least one phobia. 3. Studies show that most people have at least one phobia. 4. Studies show that most people have at least one phobia. 5. Studies show that most people have at least one phobia. Page 93. Exercise C. Vocabulary. 1. Anne gave an insightful talk that clearly explained how people can overcome their deepest fears. 2. Jenny found it hard to believe all of the rumors about the epidemic, but they still frightened her. 3. Tom understood what it felt like to starve after being lost in a desert for a week without any food. 4. The guest speaker used powerful imagery that helped people understand and accept her ideas. 5. The novel, which had so much suspense that people could not stop reading it, became a bestseller. 6. Studies showed that news stories about violent crimes often provoke a strong reaction in readers. 7. Audiences found the movie very frightening, even though most of the scary moments were subtle. 8. As soon as news of the disaster spread, volunteers rushed to the hospital to help the survivors. 9. 
Zach's dread of both heights and wide-open spaces made it hard for him to live a normal life. 10. Sophia let her worries about the journey influence her decision about when and how to travel. Part 1. Page 104. Exercise B. Communicate. We've been discussing different aspects of the global food crisis. Among other issues, these include people not having access to enough food and the high environmental cost of food production, especially meat. Some people are convinced technology will help solve the food crisis. They argue that genetic engineering, for instance, could produce crops that resist disease or are better for us. Others feel that using technology to change nature in this way could not only make the food crisis worse, but perhaps cause ecological problems. Personally, I'm neutral on the value of technology as a potential solution to the food crisis. For me, it's just one among several options. Page 105. Exercise C. Vocabulary. A. Some kinds of shellfish, including clams, mussels, and oysters, can filter pollution from the water in which they live. This ability to remove pollutants means they play an important ecological role. B. One study suggests consumers may discard up to one quarter of the food they buy. Some people are skeptical whether the real figure is this high, but others believe it and have taken steps to reduce their food waste. Still others take a neutral position and say that more studies need to be conducted. C. Some chefs are famous for using unusual ingredients in their recipes, including fruits and vegetables that are edible but rarely eaten. In addition to being delicious, these unusual foods are often rich in nutrients. D. Farmed fish used to be a niche product, but it now makes up around 40% of the fish purchased in some countries. This increase comes at a cost, though, as conventional aquaculture, or fish farming, can cause pollution. Page 106. Exercise E. Listen for main ideas. We've been discussing different aspects of the global food crisis. Among other issues, these include people not having access to enough food and the high environmental cost of food production, especially meat. Some people are convinced technology will help solve the food crisis. They argue that genetic engineering, for instance, could produce crops that resist disease or are better for us. Others feel that using technology to change nature in this way could not only make the food crisis worse, but perhaps cause ecological problems. Personally, I'm neutral on the value of technology as a potential solution to the food crisis. For me, it's just one among several options. Still, I asked all of you to research ways that technology might help.
Let's hear what you found out, starting with Amal. One technology that fascinates me is 3D printing, which I think will benefit society hugely. When I heard some 3D printers can print food, I was sure they would help with the food crisis. However, my opinion changed during my research. These printers work by printing layers of powdered ingredients on top of each other to produce an item of food. It's pretty amazing, almost like science fiction. But I'm not sure it will become an important technology. These printers might be able to add protein or other needed nutrients to foods in the future. Now, however, the machines are slow, expensive, and mostly produce non-essential foods like chocolate or candies. So I feel that printing food will be a niche technology at best, and I'd like to discuss aquaponics instead. Traditional agriculture involves either growing plants or raising animals for food. And aquaculture, or fish farming, involves raising fish in tanks or pens. Aquaponics combines growing plants and farming fish into a single system. For me, it has great potential to provide healthy, sustainable food. To understand aquaponics, think of two layers. On top are plants growing in nutrient-rich water rather than in soil. Below that is a tank of fish. Normal fish farms have a problem. In order for the fish to live in a healthy environment, farmers must filter and discard the waste that fish produce. The clever part of aquaponics is that instead of throwing away the waste, farmers use it as a nutrient for the plants. Aquaponics has some benefits over traditional agriculture. First, it produces vegetables and fish protein for people to eat. And although it looks like it needs a lot of water, the water can be recycled. I read that aquaponic systems use 90 to 98% less water than conventional agriculture, which is great for sustainability. Another benefit is that aquaponics doesn't require large areas of land. The farms are inside buildings, and these can be located anywhere, even in city centers. So food can be produced close to where people live, reducing energy and pollution costs from transportation and distribution. And aquaponics requires far less energy and resources than conventional farms. I even read that companies are developing LED light bulbs for this kind of farming. These bulbs use less energy than traditional lights. They also produce no heat, meaning they can be positioned close to the plants, which saves space. And different LEDs can produce specific types of light that are perfect for different crops. So, for instance, farmers might have one LED to help sweet potatoes grow, another just for strawberries, and one more for lettuce. Thanks, Amal. That was interesting. And for what it's worth, I agree that 3D printing of food does not seem like an obvious solution to the food crisis. Page 106. Exercise F. Listen for details. One technology that fascinates me is 3D printing, which I think will benefit society hugely. When I heard some 3D printers can print food, I was sure they would help with the food crisis. However, my opinion changed during my research. These printers work by printing layers of powdered ingredients on top of each other to produce an item of food. It's pretty amazing, almost like science fiction. 
but I'm not sure it will become an important technology. These printers might be able to add protein or other needed nutrients to foods in the future. Now, however, the machines are slow, expensive, and mostly produce non-essential foods like chocolate or candies. So I feel that printing food will be a niche technology at best, and I'd like to discuss aquaponics instead. Traditional agriculture involves either growing plants or raising animals for food. And aquaculture, or fish farming, involves raising fish in tanks or pens. Aquaponics combines growing plants and farming fish into a single system. For me, it has great potential to provide healthy, sustainable food. To understand aquaponics, think of two layers. On top are plants growing in nutrient-rich water rather than in soil. Below that is a tank of fish. Normal fish farms have a problem. In order for the fish to live in a healthy environment, farmers must filter and discard the waste that fish produce. The clever part of aquaponics is that instead of throwing away the waste, farmers use it as a nutrient for the plants. Page 107. Exercise G. Collaborate. Thanks, Amal. That was interesting. And for what it's worth, I agree that 3D printing of food does not seem like an obvious solution to the food crisis. Austin, are you ready? Okay, well, my experience was the opposite of Amal's. I started researching a technology for growing meat in a laboratory. At first, I was skeptical and didn't think the technology would be important. As I researched, though, I came to think it has a lot of potential as a sustainable solution to the food crisis. The technology is pretty simple to explain. Scientists take cells from the muscle of an animal, such as a cow, chicken, or fish. They add a special enzyme to the cells that makes them divide, and over time, they grow into a sheet of edible meat. Some of you may remember a news story about this from a few years ago. Some Dutch scientists made a burger from meat grown in their lab. At the time, there were two problems. The flavor apparently wasn't perfect, and the burger cost a crazy $325,000. Still, growing cells is basic technology, so the price has dropped substantially and will continue to do so. According to my research, the same hamburger would now cost closer to $10 and taste much better. And the process of growing cells can easily be scaled, meaning it will be possible to produce meat or fish cells cheaply and in enough quantity to feed a lot of people. The process doesn't need huge amounts of agricultural land, water, or energy, so it's sustainable. And there is one other thing that excites me about this technology. The process doesn't harm animals. I know many people don't eat meat because of concern for animals, and I think some of them might be willing to eat this meat. If my local store started selling meat grown in a lab for a decent price, I'd buy it for sure. Thank you, Austin. Also interesting. Page 109. Exercise J. Communicate. And aquaponics requires far less energy and resources than conventional farms. I even read that companies are developing LED light bulbs for this kind of farming. 
These bulbs use less energy than traditional lights. They also produce no heat, meaning they can be positioned close to the plants, which saves space. And different LEDs can produce specific types of light that are perfect for different crops. So, for instance, farmers might have one LED to help sweet potatoes grow, another just for strawberries, and one more for lettuce. Thanks, Amal. That was interesting. And for what it's worth, I agree that 3D printing of food does not seem like an obvious solution to the food crisis. Austin, are you ready? Okay, well, my experience was the opposite of Amal's. I started researching a technology for growing meat in a laboratory. At first, I was skeptical and didn't think the technology would be important. As I researched, though, I came to think it has a lot of potential as a sustainable solution to the food crisis. Page 111. Pronunciation Skill. Connected Speech. Example. The student heard a radio show about two solutions to the food crisis. Page 111. Exercise N. And aquaponics requires far less energy and resources than conventional farms. I even read the companies are developing LED light bulbs for this kind of farming. Part 2, page 113. Exercise C. Vocabulary. 1. The restaurant owner reviewed the plans and adopted the one that had the fewest drawbacks. 2. During cooking, the conversion of some substances into sugars adds delicious flavor to food. 3. Fish are often concentrated in schools or groups in nutrient-rich waters rather than being equally distributed across the oceans. 4. The chef was pleased to see that her customers were happily feasting on the dishes she prepared. 5. The organic market almost went out of business last year, but it is thriving under the new manager. 6. The expert pointed out that much more food could be grown on the land if it were farmed intensively rather than extensively, as is currently the case. 7. The villagers installed a filter to purify the water they were drinking and using for cooking. 8. The book was popular because the author presented a clear conception of how to eat healthily. 9. The chef was criticized for being an idealist rather than a realist about sustainable food production. 10. The politician argued that the only way to restore the health of the oceans and avoid depleting fish stocks was to catch fewer fish. Page 124. Exercise B. Communicate. You can see a number of parallels between the lives of the two artists, but... After their deaths, things were different. Rembrandt, 
had a reputation as a great artist in his lifetime, and his reputation grew after his death. In contrast, after his death, Vermeer's name was virtually unknown for nearly 200 years. Why? Several factors stand out. Page 125. Exercise C. Vocabulary. 1. The museum is hosting an exhibition of portraits of elderly people by great artists like Rembrandt. 2. The lives of the artists Vincent van Gogh and Edvard Munch share several interesting parallels. 3. The copy of the painting was so good it was virtually impossible to tell it apart from the original. 4. The artist received a commission to produce a painting celebrating her country's independence. 5. The new Museum of Contemporary Art will only display works produced in or after the 1950s. 6. In the assessment of many art critics, the artist's early work was less powerful than his later pieces. 7. Among all of the great artists in the world, Leonardo da Vinci perhaps has the highest standing. 8. The price of the painting was higher than expected because so many people wanted to acquire it. 9. The artist's reputation waned after people noticed he was selling works by his students as his own. 10. The new exhibition at the National Gallery is sold out because of the many exceptional reviews. Page 127. Exercise E. Listen for main ideas. Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to be discussing two painters from the Dutch Golden Age, Rembrandt von Rijn and Johannes Vermeer. Today, their paintings sell for millions of dollars at auction, and they are considered among the greatest artists in history. But for one of them, this was not always true. Rembrandt was born in 1606 in Leiden, where he opened an art studio before he was 20 years old. In 1631, he moved to Amsterdam and quickly gained a reputation as an excellent portrait artist. He produced a lot of paintings in his life. The exact number is unknown, but it was at least several hundred paintings, a similar number of prints, and a few thousand drawings. These works sold well, but despite this, Rembrandt had money problems later in life and died in poverty in 1669. Vermeer was born in 1632 in Delft, where he became a member of a local association of painters when he was 20 or 21 years old. He gained some degree of success and fame selling his works to local people. He worked slowly, however, and probably produced no more than three or four paintings a year. Again, it's hard to give an exact figure, but evidence suggests that he might have painted just 40 works in his entire career. As with Rembrandt, when he died in 1675, Vermeer had financial problems and left his family with large debts. 
You can see a number of parallels between the lives of the two artists, but after their deaths, things were different. Rembrandt had a reputation as a great artist in his lifetime, and his reputation grew after his death. In contrast, after his death, Vermeer's name was virtually unknown for nearly 200 years. Why? Several factors stand out. First, let's consider the number of works by each artist. As we've seen, Rembrandt produced many more works than Vermeer did. Why does this matter? Well, simply put, more art lovers bought, sold, and discussed works by Rembrandt than works by Vermeer. And reputations tend to decline if people are not discussing an artist or his or her work. A second point, and one that's related to the first, is that we know Rembrandt tutored a number of other artists. I mention this because Rembrandt's students produced works in his style, allowing his name to spread more widely. There is no evidence that Vermeer took on any students, however, and so he lacked this advantage. Third, we can think about where each artist lived and worked. Rembrandt was born in Leiden and moved to Amsterdam, both of which were major centers of art in the Dutch Republic. This is important because we can conclude that people with influence knew about and talked about Rembrandt. In comparison, far fewer people knew of Vermeer or talked about his works. The reason? He spent his entire life in Delft, a small city that was not a center of art. The final reason comes down to social position. Rembrandt married into a family with a high social position. He also had a wealthy patron, that's a kind of investor, who helped him receive commissions from members of the upper classes, including a prince. The upper classes were considered more important, more newsworthy, if you like, and Rembrandt's higher social status meant that he was more widely discussed than Vermeer both before and after his death. Okay, so we've seen why and how the reputation of Rembrandt grew while Vermeer's diminished. But the contemporary assessment is that both Rembrandt and Vermeer are true Dutch masters. So why did Vermeer's standing improve? One word. Quality. Simply put, Vermeer's paintings are great works of art. Many of his works were seen as great art, and people continued to acquire and collect them even during the time when few people knew the name of Johannes Vermeer. And that's a surprisingly common thing to happen, as we'll see in future classes. An artist's name may be forgotten, but if he or she creates art of exceptional quality, then eventually his or her reputation will grow. Page 127. Exercise F. Listen for details. Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to be discussing two painters from the Dutch Golden Age, Rembrandt von Rijn and Johannes Vermeer. Today, their paintings sell for millions of dollars at auction, and they are considered among the greatest artists in history. But for one of them, this was not always true. Rembrandt was born in 1606 in Leiden 
where he opened an art studio before he was 20 years old. In 1631, he moved to Amsterdam and quickly gained a reputation as an excellent portrait artist. He produced a lot of paintings in his life. The exact number is unknown, but it was at least several hundred paintings, a similar number of prints, and a few thousand drawings. These works sold well, but despite this, Rembrandt had money problems later in life and died in poverty in 1669. Vermeer was born in 1632 in Delft, where he became a member of a local association of painters when he was 20 or 21 years old. He gained some degree of success and fame selling his works to local people. He worked slowly, however, and probably produced no more than three or four paintings a year. Again, it's hard to give an exact figure, but evidence suggests that he might have painted just 40 works in his entire career. As with Rembrandt, when he died in 1675, Vermeer had financial problems and left his family with large debts. Page 128. Exercise G. Identify speaker's purpose. And exercise H. Communicate. Excerpt 1. You can see a number of parallels between the lives of the two artists, but after their deaths, things were different. Rembrandt had a reputation as a great artist in his lifetime, and his reputation grew after his death. In contrast, after his death, Vermeer's name was virtually unknown for nearly 200 years. Why? Several factors stand out. Excerpt 2. First, let's consider the number of works by each artist. As we've seen, Rembrandt produced many more works than Vermeer did. Why does this matter? Well, simply put, more art lovers bought, sold, and discussed works by Rembrandt than works by Vermeer. And reputations tend to decline if people are not discussing an artist or his or her work. Excerpt 3. A second point, and one that's related to the first, is that we know Rembrandt tutored a number of other artists. I mention this because Rembrandt's students produced works in his style, allowing his name to spread more widely. There is no evidence that Vermeer took on any students, however, and so he lacked this advantage. Excerpt 4 Third, we can think about where each artist lived and worked. Rembrandt was born in Leiden and moved to Amsterdam, both of which were major centers of art in the Dutch Republic. This is important because we can conclude that people with influence knew about and talked about Rembrandt. In comparison, far fewer people knew of Vermeer or talked about his works. The reason? He spent his entire life in Delft, a small city that was not a center of art. Excerpt 5. The final reason comes down to social position. Rembrandt married into a family with a high social position. He also had a wealthy patron, that's a kind of investor, 
who helped him receive commissions from members of the upper classes, including a prince. The upper classes were considered more important, more newsworthy, if you like, and Rembrandt's higher social status meant that he was more widely discussed than Vermeer both before and after his death. Page 130. Exercise K. Excerpt 1. In contrast, after his death, Vermeer's name was virtually unknown for nearly 200 years. Why? Several factors stand out. Excerpt 2. Rembrandt's students produced works in his style, allowing his name to spread more widely. There is no evidence that Vermeer took on any students, however. Excerpt 3. Rembrandt was born in Leiden and moved to Amsterdam, both of which were major centers of art in the Dutch Republic. This is important because we can conclude that people with influence knew about and talked about Rembrandt. Excerpt 4. Rembrandt married into a family with a high social position. He also had a wealthy patron, that's a kind of investor, who helped him receive commissions. Page 130. Pronunciation skill. Use emphasis for a purpose. To correct a mistake or misunderstanding. This happened in 1631, not 1630. To highlight how one idea differs from another. Rembrandt lived in Amsterdam, while Vermeer lived in Delft. To make a key detail or major point clear. What's the reason? One word. Reputation. Page 130, Exercise M. Communicate. Excerpt 1. They are considered among the greatest artists in history, but for one of them, this was not always true. Excerpt 2. It's hard to give an exact figure, but evidence suggests that he might have painted just 40 works in his entire career. Excerpt 3. But the contemporary assessment is that both Rembrandt and Vermeer are true Dutch masters. So why did Vermeer's standing improve? One word. Quality. Excerpt 4. An artist's name may be forgotten, but if he or she creates art of exceptional quality, then eventually his or her reputation will grow. Part 2, page 132, exercise C, vocabulary. 1. The company's biggest asset was its positive reputation among consumers. 
They reduced energy consumption to attract environmentally conscious customers. 3. This new service empowers people by giving them access to useful online resources. 4. The core of her plan was excellent, but many of the details were not fully developed. 5. He could not complete the transaction because the website would not accept his credit card. 6. The firm saved a lot of money when it chose to outsource training and recruitment to another company. 7. Her bid for the project won because she had earned a great reputation from previous work. 8. The employee promised to return and finish the work after he had run a quick errand. 9. She was so happy with the product that she gave it a five-star rating in an online review. 10. Smartphones created a revolution in how people communicate with others. Part 1, page 145, Exercise C, Vocabulary. A. Professor Yi's ability to remember the names of all the students in her classes is impressive. B. Kay got a personal tracking device to record and quantify data about her physical activity. C. Professor Evans had students interpret the data from their experiments for homework. D. When he first began attending college, Gavin suffered from homesickness for a few weeks. E. During her time at college, Chandra accumulated dozens of textbooks and study guides. F. Alex did the experiment so carefully he was able to get more precise results than anyone else. G. Although she spent hours commuting, it never occurred to Anne to move closer to campus. H. Most students' favorite aspect of Professor Chen's class was his habit of telling funny stories. I. After Jake worked hard to raise his GPA to 3.5, he became eligible to apply for the scholarship. J. Leon was tempted to apply for a part-time job, but decided it was better to focus on his studies. Page 146, Exercise E, Listen for Main Ideas. Abdel, long time no see. How are things? Reg, is that you? I almost didn't recognize you. Yeah, I've lost some weight. That's great. I'm kind of surprised to bump into you, though. I thought you were going to have to take a semester off to make some money. I was able to turn my financial situation around. Yeah? So you've lost some weight and sorted out your finances? That's really impressive. What's your secret? I started tracking my life. Did you say hacking your life? No, tracking my life. But I guess some people would call what I've been doing a kind of life hack. Oh, okay. So you've been using one of those fitness tracker things? Well, yes and no. I have a fitness tracker, and I truly think it's great. It really helps me stay active and keep in shape. But the fitness tracker is not what started this. 
You see, there's this movement called the quantified self, which basically involves using technology to quantify the data of your daily life. So, for example, you might track your activity levels, the food you eat, your moods, your energy levels, that kind of thing. And then, once you've tracked all that data, you can interpret it and use it as the basis for your decisions about your life. Okay. I understand the theory now, but I'm not sure I see how it works in practice. Let me tell you how it worked for me. As you know, I had money troubles last semester. I got a part-time job, but it wasn't enough. I needed to earn more. And because I was working, I had less time to study, which caused my grades to suffer. I was absolutely certain that my only option was to take a semester or two off and work full-time. Then my sister suggested that I track my expenses to see what I was spending my money on. She'd tried it herself and was able to reduce her expenses significantly. I doubted it would help, to be honest, but it was essential that I do something, so I gave it a try. So I tracked my expenses and then looked at the data I'd accumulated. I couldn't interpret things in a really precise way. After all, I didn't have months and months of data, but it was easy to see that my top three expenses were rent, car, and food. I can understand rent and car, but food? Really? Yeah, that surprised me too. But it turned out that I spent so much time working, studying, and commuting back and forth that I had no time to cook, so I was eating out pretty much all the time, and that gets pretty expensive. Anyway, I realized that if I got rid of my car, I would save hundreds every month because I wouldn't have to pay for gas, insurance, or parking. In fact, I saw that I would save so much that I could actually quit my job and still have some extra dollars in my pocket every month. And it occurred to me that if I used those extra dollars to get a better apartment that was closer to campus, I wouldn't need a car at all. So what did I do? Sold my car, quit my job, and moved closer to school. Huh. It sounds so simple. It is simple. But until I tracked and interpreted all that data, I never saw how much I could save. I just went on doing things the way I'd always done them, you know? I hear you. Anyway, the consequence of doing those three things is that I've turned pretty much every aspect of my life around. Health-wise, I'm doing great. I walk to campus every day, go to the gym a couple of times a week, and cook for myself almost every night. That's how I was able to lose some weight. My financial situation is really good too, as I said. Because I'm in good shape, I haven't been sick in months, so I've got no medical expenses. And I've got more time to study than before. My grades are so much better that I'm eligible for a scholarship this semester. It's not much, but every little bit helps. So let me get this straight. You quantified your life, and based on the data you accumulated, you quit your job, sold your car, moved into a better apartment, got healthy, lost weight, raised your grades, and got a scholarship? I'm impressed, and really tempted to do it myself. You should totally do it. It'll change your life. You know, there are a lot of people quantifying their lives these days. I go to regular meetings with some of them. We talk about many aspects of using information, including things like machine learning and big data. It's interesting stuff. Why don't you check out our next meeting? It's on Thursday. I'd love to come. Text me the details, okay? Oh, and let me know which fitness tracker you use, too. Will do. Glad you're so eager to do this. See you Thursday.
page 147. Exercise F. Listen for details. Anyway, the consequence of doing those three things is that I've turned pretty much every aspect of my life around. Health-wise, I'm doing great. I walk to campus every day, go to the gym a couple of times a week, and cook for myself almost every night. That's how I was able to lose some weight. My financial situation is really good, too, as I said. Because I'm in good shape, I haven't been sick in months, so I've got no medical expenses. And I've got more time to study than before. My grades are so much better that I'm eligible for a scholarship this semester. It's not much, but every little bit helps. Page 147, Exercise G. Excerpt 1. Okay, I understand the theory now, but I'm not sure I see how it works in practice. Excerpt 2. I can understand rent and car, but food? Really? Excerpt 3. I got a part-time job, but it wasn't enough. I needed to earn more. And because I was working, I had less time to study, which caused my grades to suffer. I was absolutely certain that my only option was to take a semester or two off and work full-time. Excerpt 4 So let me get this straight. You quantified your life and based on the data you accumulated, you quit your job, sold your car, moved into a better apartment, got healthy, lost weight, raised your grades, and got a scholarship? Excerpt 5. I'd love to come. Text me the details, okay? Oh, and let me know which fitness tracker you use, too. Page 150. Pronunciation skill. Stress and intonation in comparisons and contrasts. Examples of stress. This new fitness tracker costs less than my old one, but it has more features. The data I got from self-tracking was more useful than the advice from my sister. Although this fitness tracker is cheap, its features are impressive. Example of intonation. Tracking your life is great, but it can take a lot of time. Page 151. Exercise N. Collaborate. 1. As you know, I had money troubles last semester. I got a part-time job, but it wasn't enough. I needed to earn more. And because I was working, I had less time to study. 2. It occurred to me that if I used those extra dollars to get a better apartment that was closer to campus, I wouldn't need a car at all. 3. I've got more time to study than before. My grades are so much better that I'm eligible for a scholarship this semester. Part 2. Page 153. Exercise C. Vocabulary. 1. 
The speaker gave some examples of things she had learned from statistical analysis of the data. 2. Because the speaker's online talk had the best ratings, it was chosen as the ultimate presentation. 3. The two effects did not seem linked, but studies proved they were actually strongly correlated. 4. There is no concrete proof yet, but further research should allow us to prove the theory for certain. 5. Students were advised to discuss broad themes in their talks, but to avoid generalizing too much. 6. The woman's talk featured some incredible photographs of her exciting new discovery. 7. Because he was worried that audience members without a scientific background would find his talk too technical, the speaker worked hard to simplify it. 8. The professor ended her class with some important announcements, including how imperative it was that students submit their final papers by the due date. 9. The speaker first discussed several problems and then suggested ingenious solutions to all of them. 10. The decision by the conference organizers to impose a ban on cell phones was very unpopular. End of CD 2